Our scripture today is from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word. All right. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for gracing us with your word. We know, Lord Jesus, that the key to life is to be immersed in your word. It's to devour your word. It's to be shaped by your word. And so today we come together. I come as a learner, curious, uh, wanting more of you. Uh, a person who, just like anybody else here, whose heart has been adrift this week. And Jesus, we want to be captured by you, recaptured by you. We want to know you. We don't just want to learn information. We want to be with you. And so I pray, Jesus, that today as we get into these handful of verses, that we would experience your presence, your grace, that truth would realign us, that we would know you. In your name, amen. Amen. I uh, just want to spend some time on these first uh, eight verses, everybody, of Luke chapter 20. Um, you probably are aware that we are in the middle of a series um, called Politicking. And the idea behind this series is to reframe or reset our posture in the way that we think about, interact with, express our politics. Politics is a big part of our lives. Um, if you remember in week one of this series, we talked about how Jesus, God, invented politics when he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. He gave them a divine mandate to bring order and governance to a world before sin ever crept in that had a tendency to go a little bit chaotic. And order, as we understand it, is to bring beauty to develop this world, to steward this world well. This is what we want to do. We're not talking about politics just because there's an election coming up pretty soon and the current election cycle that we're in is a little mucky and ugly and mean-spirited. We're doing this because this is a discipleship issue. God has called us to think this way. And so the temptation is to be shaped by the world around us. We want to be shaped by Jesus. And so verse 1, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him. I want to just take a moment and reset the context for Jesus's ministry. A lot of us envision Jesus as being sort of like a Sunday school teacher, walking around in his robe and dusty roads and uh, pretty, pretty, uh, non-threatening environment. That's not the case. Um, Jesus was living in a world that is not dissimilar from an ISIS caliphate in Syria or Iraq. A world 
that was taken over and occupied by a foreign army that routinely beheaded and crucified people to send a message that you are a subjugated people and do not dare rise up or stand against Caesar. This is the context in which Jesus led, in which Jesus did his ministry, the Roman Empire. Rome allowed the Jews to have a degree of self-governance, which is why you see King Herod, Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, all these guys, they had a degree of authority because that was the way that Rome was able to throw a bone to the Jews. We'll let you sort of rule yourself. But when it comes to capital punishment and other important political issues, that's up to us. We decide that. But we'll let you feel like you're running the show yourself. We'll let you feel that way. The idea was to obliterate, to take away the Jewish identity, to leave them feeling, as we discussed last week, that they needed and depended upon Rome. This was the idea. It's estimated that in the first century in Palestine, and I call it Palestine, not politically, but because that was the Roman province of Palestine in that time. They renamed the Jewish nation, again, another way of removing their identity from them. It's been estimated by scholars that between the beginning of the first century and the year A.D. 70, that there were between 50,000 and 100,000 public crucifixions in Israel. Between 50 and 100,000 crucifixions. I want you to imagine how devastating that image is for you if you lived in that context over and over and over and over again. Historians from back then, Josephus and others, talk about how uh, there were times where two, three, four thousand people were crucified on the side of the road of a main thoroughfare all at once to send a message to travelers, to people who were pilgriming, pilgriming, pilgrimaging, whatever, to Israel, to Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem that this is the reality that you're walking into. You don't have self-rule. You are accountable. You are ruled by Caesar and Rome. Imagine that. 50 to 100,000 public crucifixions, grisly and gruesome murders, all to send you a message that you better not have an opinion. You better not share your heart. Don't live by your convictions. Imagine experiencing 9-11 over and over and over and over and over again. We just celebrated that 15th anniversary of 9-11. And that image is still an agonizing horror in our minds. It was the day that America lost its innocence. It was a day that our identity, in a sense, was taken away from us. Imagine experiencing that horror, that catastrophe, over and over and over again. This is the context in which Jesus said, if you follow me, you must pick up your cross. You must pick up your cross. Man, that doesn't sound like very savvy leadership to me. <laughs> there certainly could have been a better way to say, follow me. But Jesus chose something that created a visceral reaction in his followers or would-be followers. Jesus, it says in this verse, was teaching in the temple. He was teaching in the temple. The temple was the center of Jewish cultural and religious life. 
If the Jews could have had a flag back then, it probably wouldn't have been the Star of David. It probably would have been a picture of the temple. The temple was the seat of emotion and worship and identity for the Jews. Every Jew, every Jew made a pilgrimage to the temple. They had to. They came to make sacrifices so that their sins would be atoned for every year. The temple was synonymous with the nation of Israel, the heart of Israel, and it was the most cherished jewel of Israelite culture. But it was also watched really, really closely by the Roman government. Rome knew that if there was going to be any insurgents against its government, it would probably happen at or around the temple. The temple was the place that brought every Jewish heart together. The temple. And Jesus was there preaching the gospel in their territory. The territory of, at least they thought it was their territory, the territory of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. He was preaching in their backyard. And he was preaching, and don't, let, don't miss this, he was preaching the gospel We know what the gospel is because the gospels tell us what Jesus meant when he preached the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Whoa, revolutionary. Don't repent and continue to follow Caesar. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is another ruler who is over Caesar, who is more powerful than the Roman government. Repent. His kingdom, his rule is at hand. Live under his rule. Submit to his rule. These were revolutionary ideas. The temple was also the place, though, where people gathered, throngs of worshipers gathered together. This was a place where if Jesus preached revolutionary ideas, it would resonate with a lot of people, which is why the religious leaders challenged Jesus at the temple to try to break up any potential insurgents. What is happening here that we often miss in the Gospels is a political conflict that was thorny and threatening and potentially devastating. We miss this. We, don't, we didn't live in that culture. Context means everything. This summer, I did a couple of sermons on how we should seek to understand our African-American brothers and sisters who are expressing lament and who are mourning over the racial conditions of our country. If I were to preach that message in 1985 when I was in fifth grade, I, I don't think I would have had the visceral reaction that I had when I preached it this summer two days after five police officers were killed in the streets. But because of the context, the message was heard differently. Context means everything. Jesus isn't in a Sunday school room when he's teaching this stuff. He is in the middle of a very, very tenuous political environment. He is a threat. These scribes and these chief priests, they lived in the tension of having to govern God's people spiritually and at the same time hoping for deliverance from Rome. They really did, in a sense, want what Jesus wanted, but they didn't want Jesus' way of attaining it. They rejected Jesus' methods, Jesus' strategy, 
They couldn't tolerate it. They lived in that tension. And so what they set out to do was to quash any political threat that raised its head in their culture, in their community. They couldn't risk Rome making another example out of them like it did just a few years before Jesus' birth when thousands were crucified in one day. They couldn't risk that. They couldn't risk it. They couldn't risk it. They didn't want to see their country destroyed, which is interesting because in the previous chapter in Luke 19, and keep in mind, Luke 19 and 20, this is the end of Jesus' ministry. He's entered Jerusalem to teach for the final time. In a very short time, Jesus will be crucified. Jesus is feeling the tension, the tightening in his chest. He knows that his end is coming in his earthly ministry. And in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, he says these words, And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it. He lamented for his city. That's a biblical thing to lament over our society. It's a biblical thing to weep over the condition of our culture. He wept over it. And he said to this, he said in his prayer as he's weeping, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. My way of peace was the way, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus is pronouncing a judgment. He's not just foretelling something because he's God. So he's pronouncing as God a judgment upon the Jews for rejecting his ministry. He says, these things are now hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not recognize it when the Messiah finally came. Only 40 years later, Rome surrounded Jerusalem, sieged it, sieged it to the point that cannibalism was run amok in the streets, obliterated Jerusalem. Even the temple, Herod's glorious temple, not one stone was left on another. The very thing that the Jews were trying to avoid, they rejected Jesus' way, settled for their own wisdom when it came to political interaction, and it led to their demise. This is scary stuff, guys. Verse 2, and this is what they said to him. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. You see the power struggle there. You see the power struggle there. The question at the heart of this text is so simple. Who knows what is best for God's people? That's the first uh, fill in the blank in your bulletin. Who knows what's best for God's people? Do the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, do they know what's best or does Jesus know what's best? And you could ask the same question about our political climate in America today. Who knows what's best 
for our country or our people? Jesus or us? Who knows what's best? I know that's not an easy question to answer. I don't mean to come across as naive. I know that's a hard question to answer. But it's a question that we must interact with with utmost humility. We must do our due diligence to remain under the authority of God's word. We must remain that way. So this is a power struggle that's happening here. And this is largely why the Pharisees were unconvinced when Jesus performed astounding miracles. It's not that they were just entirely intellectually dishonest. It's that Jesus' way was a threat to the status quo. Jesus' way seemed too dangerous, too threatening. I submit to you that any individual who has ever truly interacted with Jesus' call to discipleship, you have felt those same feelings. It's too threatening. It's too threatening. Upset the apple cart, man. What happens if I really give Jesus my all? What happens if I worship Jesus in my marriage rather than giving in to the secular and calloused uh, counsel that I'm receiving amongst my friends in the workplace? Just divorce them. I've got an addiction, and I know I need to eliminate every device in my house and get rid of every computer, but man, I need the Internet. And so Jesus' call to deal harshly with the issues in our life that lead us to sin, go ignored. It's too hard. This is why Jesus made no bones about it. My way is the narrow way. It is not the broad way. It is not the easy way. It's not the easy way. He was too much of a threat. Look at verses 3 and 4. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man. Jesus is amazing. I wish I could answer hard questions like Jesus did. I always stick my foot in my mouth. Jesus says something amazing and completely flips the conversation. Why was that cunning? Why was that shrewd? Why was that wise that Jesus said, was the baptism of John from God or from man? Because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the midst of a crowd And those people revere John. If the Pharisees even hint that John's ministry was illegitimate, then bad things could happen to them. Bad things could happen. The wrong kind of insurgency could happen. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, a dove descended upon him, and at the same time the Spirit came upon him, the voice that, a voice came from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then before Jesus gets down to the water, John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So you've got an audible voice from God. You've got a dove that comes down, which is really poetic and amazing. And you've got John the Baptist saying, the final old covenant prophet, so to speak, who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you reject all three of those cues, then you're brain dead. And the Pharisees did. They rejected all of those cues. Why? Because the political apple cart had to be protected. It had to be protected. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus identified and put a laser focus on their intellectual dishonesty. 
He put a laser focus on it, their dishonesty. God's authority was publicly conferred upon Jesus when John John baptized him. And Jesus identified their motives. They wanted to engage Jesus in a hairy political discussion. And what did Jesus say? He called out their hypocrisy. Now, this is big for the rest of the text here. Look at verses 5 through 7. And, and, uh, and they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Aren't politics hard? Oh, like I've got to have this aside and huddle up with my guys. Okay, we've got to figure out how to answer this now. PR, PR, PR. Man, politics are hard. Wouldn't it just be better to be honest? Well, Jesus wasn't. It got him crucified. So be careful to answer that question. Um, So they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? So, ooh, what are we going to do? But if we say from man, then all the people will stone us to death. That's not good either. For they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And this leads us into a few points that I want to make on how we need to watch ourselves when it comes to our political interaction with one another and our political interaction with God. A couple things, a few things, five things actually. The first is this. A lust for power leads to dishonesty. Dishonesty. These guys would not admit the blatant truth that John's call to repent was of God. Jesus said, do you embrace John the Baptist's ministry? What did John the Baptist say? Repent. Submit to God. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, we can't say that that was of God. These are trained theologians who had the entire Old Testament memorized. And they could not admit that what John said was right because the truth of John interfered with their politics. When I talk about lust for power, I'm not suggesting that people in this room have fascist tendencies. Some of you might say that about your spouse or your kids or something, but generally I'm not suggesting we have fascist tendencies when I say we have a lust for power. I'm talking about something more subtle than that. What I'm saying is that though we we are tempted to use political force and political bullying to achieve God's will. We are tempted to use political force and political bullying to coerce people into submitting to God. That is what Jesus rejected. He rejected that. And this is why in our lives so many of us are completely um, um, possessed almost by this lust for power. So much, we say, depends on who becomes the next president. I'm not saying that that's inconsequential. I'm not saying that. But for so many people in our church and outside of our church, our controlling impulse is who is going to be POTUS next rather than a simple, humble trust in God that he rules the universe. I am not suggesting, again, that political activism, there's no place for that. Listen to last week's message. There is. I'm suggesting that you search your heart. What is your controlling impulse? An anger and a mean-spirited anxiety that comes with obsessing over who the next president is? Or caring about our issues, engaging about the issues that are 
terrible in our country that need improvement and need politicking, but at the same time, threading that needle well and having a simple, restful trust in Jesus. God has superintended the human race through worse circumstances than we're in right now. He has, and he will to the end. We are gorging ourselves on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the more we listen to talk radio all day long. News channels all day long. We are immersing ourselves in political intrigue, blog after blog after blog after blog. And at the same time, our spiritual life is anemic. It's starving. It's starving. It's starving. Here's the second thing. A lust for power can lead us to reject God's plan. It can lead us to reject God's plan. These trained theologians disavowed God's prophet, John the Baptist. And they settled for political expediency instead. In the heat of the moment, a man that they tried to go have baptized them, and then John wouldn't do it because he said, basically, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You guys are jokes. And so that obviously didn't sit well with them. So maybe they had some bitterness issues they had to work through with John. But they tried to go submit to John's baptism, and he called them out in the middle of all the Jews. And this guy that they tried to have baptized, they disavowed as a prophet of God because he rubbed against their politics. He rubbed against their politics, their political ambitions. How many of us are neglecting the poor and the foreigner? And I'll even take it another step. The refugee. Because it doesn't line up with our politics. I'm not making blanket political statements on policies about refugees coming in or out of our country. I'm talking about the people that are here in our city right now who are languishing in poverty. And the church is afraid to touch them. They are the community of lepers among us because doing that will interfere with our politics. What if we took our politics and put them on the side and said, Jesus, what do you say about poor people? What do you say about people who are foreigners? Keep in mind that ancient Israel had rules given to them by God about intermarrying with foreigners. God said, don't do it. And yet, when foreigners came in among them, God said, you make sure that you serve them well and you take care of them. And that's where that was institutionalized. You can't have foreigners in your borders. And God still said, make sure that you see to their needs. To be clear, to avoid hopefully a third of the emails I may be getting, I am not saying, I'm not making any comments on whether or on the, on how right or wrong it is to let people across our borders. I'm not a political scientist. That's not what I am, obviously. <laughs> I am talking about the people that are here right now who are alone and need love. Will our politics keep us from doing that? Will our politics keep us from doing that? How many of us conversely are so dug in to social justice that we are ignoring the Great Commission. I want to I pick on both sides here. 
The social justice is not the bleeding edge of Jesus' way of redeeming this earth. The gospel is. So how many of us are neglecting growing strong in our ability to share our faith, to be rooted and immersed in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can bring redemption to broken hearts all around us? Social, there's not enough social justice you can do to make up for what the scriptures call the great commission. The great commission. So politics can mess, mess with us on both sides. Third thing, if you want to, for those of you who still love me and want to hang around. Number three, a lust for power can cause us to walk by our own wisdom rather than the Spirit's guidance. I want you to note the religious leaders offline aside that they had to curate a politically expedient reply in order to manage what people thought about them. God had no place in that conversation. Do you invite God to listen to Rush Limbaugh with you? I'm not saying Rush Limbaugh's bad or good. I'm just saying. Does, 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 what does God say about that? I know he, may, he has strong opinions, but God also has strong opinions. Do you invite God to listen to NPR with you? Do you invite God to watch Fox News with you? Careful not to shame each other. Careful. It's not wrong to watch Fox News. Be careful. Do you invite God to watch MSNBC with you? Do you invite God to be with you as you are curating an angry response on Facebook to people that you that make you sick? Is God a part of your politics? Or is that a separate compartment that can't be touched and shaped by God's word? These are controversial things to say, yet so clear in Scripture. So clear. So clear. We lost people over this, speaking this way. This summer, my call to understand the African-American who was brought into our country through slavery, which shaped that entire culture. It's different than coming here by choice as an immigrant with hope in your heart. Totally different. Totally different. I'm not trying to coerce people into believing in such a thing as white privilege. I'm not trying to get you to go picket with the Black Lives Matter uh, grassroots movement. The only thing I've asked anybody in this church to do is to build relationships with people outside of your echo chamber and to learn them, to be curious about them. You would have thought, though, that I would have said, go pick it with Black Lives Matter, based on some people's reactions. I'm not going to tell you what to do strategically, but I will give you biblical values that speak into political issues. I will do that. But this messes with people's politics. This is messes with people's politics. And when you mess with people's politics, man, that's the unpardonable sin in our culture. That's the unpardonable sin. 
My call to understand was rejected by some. It's the first time in my ministry I've ever been called liberal and conservative in separate emails in one week. It's been awesome. I've never been called a liberal before. I was like, wow, that's interesting. That's what that feels like. Interesting. As uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, the great philosopher, if you can label me, you can negate me. If you can label me, you can negate me. Number four. A lust for power makes political intrigue more compelling than the glory of God. Political intrigue. More interesting. Funner. Is it funner or more fun? More fun. Okay. More fun. Hey, I only took one English in college. Um, The religious leaders were most concerned, what they were most concerned about was maintaining the status quo, Israel's way of life, more than honoring God. Just let that sink. Think about that. Think about that. What is the primary impulse? I've been hitting this every week. What is the primary impulse behind our politics? Protecting a way of life? or bringing glory to God. I'm not saying that we should not have some level of self-interest. We should have good laws that protect us. We should have good civil uh, uh, protocol in terms of uh, voting and expressing our feelings and our heart and and all, all that stuff. I'm not taking away anything from that. I'm so happy we live in a democratic society in which we have freedom of speech and we have say so and the government supposedly is accountable to us, the citizens. I'm really happy about that. I'm glad we don't live in an empire like Rome where nobody had civil rights. Nobody. But at the end of the day, the primary impulse of our politics, is it self-interest, is it self-preservation, or is it the glory of Jesus? When I read Habakkuk, there's this grand prophecy that's given that one day the entire earth will be covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. That's what every believer should be going for. That every mouth would praise his name. That every heart would be aligned with his kingdom. Everyone. Everyone. What gets your juices flowing? The possibility of acquiring or losing power, you or your party, or the glory of God? Are you able to digest political bad news and rest knowing God sovereignly rules the nations. And number five, number five, a lust for power will quench the Holy Spirit's activity among us. Growing up in the charismatic movement, I heard this verse a lot. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. It's a good verse. I don't want to be guilty of stifling the Spirit's work in our church. I really don't. But that verse emerged out of a context. And so if you would, humor me just for a moment and go with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. And we're going to read through 12 through 19. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 19. Paul says this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He says, respect 
your pastors, your spiritual leaders. Respect them. Then he says this in verse 13. And to esteem them very highly. I've got to admit, I feel a little bit of shame when I read that because I'm t- it could sound self-interested here. Um, but it's, it's the, God's word says. Esteem those pastors and spiritual leaders very highly in love. Not wait on us hand and foot, wash our cars, stuff like that. That's not what it's saying here. But esteem us in love. Love. Because of their work. So he says, the first thing he says is, man, make sure your relationship with your leaders is really Jesus-centered and loving. Then Paul says this. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, what does it look like to be at peace among yourselves? We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle. Give the spiritually lazy a kick in the pants. Admonish them. Help them along. Pull them out of, uh, out of being idle. I lost my place. Okay. Uh, okay. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. The people who are depressed and in despair, come alongside them. Pick them up. Be a living presence in their lives. Serve them. He says, help the weak. The people who can't do it on their own, help them, man. Serve them. Be patient with them all. So be patient with the people who are spiritually idle. Be patient with the weak. Be patient with those who are experiencing despair. Be patient with them. They'll try to fix them in 30 minutes. Be patient with them. Walk with them. Endure with them. Incarnate yourself in their lives like Jesus did to us. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Meaning, he's putting the responsibility on us as Jesus people. That if people in our church are acting vengefully, we are obligated by God's word to go to them and say, Hey man, don't do that. Forgive that person. Let me help mediate a reconciliation here. That's not just for the pastors here. This is for everybody. We all as followers of Jesus have a responsibility to go to one another and make sure that we are not behaving vengefully toward one another. Paul calls that evil. Evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So you've got two categories of people. Always, is there ever a time where always doesn't apply? What category is that called? I don't know. Always seek to do good to one another, the church. Who are the other people he's talking about? Anybody? Anybody? People outside the church. So always seek to do good to people in the church and people outside the church. Always seek to do that. Anybody still believe that this is Jesus's or God's word here? Anybody believe that? Does anybody still believe God's word has authority, have authority over us? Does, okay, all right, good. That's really good. We all agree on that. He says, rejoice always. He's not saying be happy, clappy here. That's not what he means. He's talking to a persecuted community. He's trying to teach them how to take joy in their sufferings. 
He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. The command not to quench the Spirit follows Paul's wishes that believers esteem one another and their leaders very highly in love, to be at peace together, to push the spiritually lazy, to encourage the depressed, to speak for and serve the weak, to always, always, always do good to one another and everyone else outside the church, to rejoice rather than complain, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. It's in this context that Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Everything the Pharisees were doing, quenching the Spirit. It's the last thing, verse 8. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So two things real quick. Micro lesson, micro lesson. Jesus did not allow himself to get dragged into an ugly, dishonest political interaction. Now this is tough because what I'm saying to you is basically this. If you perceive that someone is dishonest, don't engage with them. And here's the thing. We've all got blind spots, man. All of us do. But I'm not talking about bearing with somebody in love who's got a couple of blind spots, who may just not see white privilege. Bear with that person in love. Who may not understand why things like the bridge happened here in Memphis. Those are... Those are gray areas, man. I'm not sure about some of these things. And so what I've learned is that rather than trying to figure everything out and have an, an, an objective answer for everything, I've learned to live between, between two poles. Two poles. Poles can be that way too, right? The top one being hope and the bottom one being reality. Because God calls us to live in the middle. And that's called Lament. We're grounded in reality, things we don't understand about our world, painful things. And yet we have a hope that when Jesus returns, all of creation will be redeemed. Justice will reign in our streets. Righteousness will prevail. Love will be a throb that will never leave the hearts of the redeemed. And so we live between those two poles, and we live in this time of mystery, unanswered questions. Debates that will never resolve. And so we lament. We mourn the brokenness that exists in our community. But together we join hands. We don't let that brokenness divide us. We join hands and we lift up our eyes to Jesus. Him. And speaking of Jesus, here's the macro point. Big point here. Notice what Jesus did when his adversaries would not engage him honestly, Jesus stopped the conversation. They quenched the spirit. Jesus literally shut down. I'm done. They rejected Jesus the Messiah. Trained theologians. The presence of God withdrew from them. Why? This may be an oversimplification, but I think it works. Why? 
Why did Jesus withdraw himself from him? Because political intrigue and the struggle over power were more important than truth, than obedience, than love. Be careful. The more we walk into and wade into the swamp of political meanness, it disfigures us as humanity. And it is an implicit rejection of Jesus. We are to bear with one another in love. God, you are gracious. We need you. These things are not easy things to walk out or consider. Some of us this morning, our sensibilities have been shocked. But I pray that we would all have the courage to put aside our sensibilities and to lean into Jesus, his truth, his way. I pray, Lord God, that our community of believers, this little community, would be a force in this city of good and righteousness and love and justice. And I pray, Lord God, that politics would never, ever, ever, ever corral our good works. I pray that politics would never, ever divide us one from another, but that we would remember that it's because of Jesus' blood that the dividing wall has been torn down among us. And we are now one in Jesus. We are one ethnic group together in Jesus. Help us to remember this, Lord. In your name, amen. We conclude each service with the Lord's Supper and a brief time of worship. You're going to notice that people are going to take the Lord's Supper and go to their seats and take it with groups of people, their community group, their family, their group of friends. Others are going to take it alone. There's no rules. Please don't feel coerced into doing that. The only thing that we ask is that when you partake of the Lord's table, that you do so with reverence, Humility, and most importantly, a repentant heart. In a few minutes after we take the Lord's Supper, I will come up and formally dismiss you. My friends, I love you. I care very deeply for you. Our pastors love you. I really hope, my prayer is that we can continue to keep our arms locked together and walk forward in pushing Jesus' political agenda, the redemption of all humanity. You may partake of the Lord's table.